I have hope that I never have to hear the words never again. One can hope for many things, but there is one reality that allows that hope to really never be cracked. And that is the history of a 4,000 year old civilization. The Jew is as eternal as eternality itself. So whether or not I need hope or not, that hope is embedded in every single fiber of my being. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Inspired, the podcast where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs and innovators who are changing the game in their respective industries. Before we dive into it, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe to the show if you haven't already, and follow us on Spotify so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes and content coming your way. Impact is a very delicate word, one that I take quite to heart. And I'm only bringing you individuals that I believe have something meaningful to say about issues that I care about and I believe in. And this particular individual is making an impact of his own. Right now, with feet on the ground in Israel and has dedicated his life to a philanthropic venture, the Israel Innovation Fund, among a few other projects. I'm very pleased to introduce Mr. Adam Scott Bellos. How are you today, sir? I'm doing good, John. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, man. I've, I've seen your content for a while now. We have a few mutual friends in common, someone that I obviously hold very dearly and in a very high regard in the form of my brother and uh, Mr. Joel Katz. You know? As do I hold your brother in high regard. We kept ourselves sane together for the first three months of the Arctic. <laughs> and, you know, I, I see the way that you know, I'm, I just want to hear in your, in your own words. We'll start, we'll start at the top. Let's introduce you. Please share with the audience what your mission is and a little bit about the Israel Innovation Fund. Uh, I, have, I have many missions in this world. <laughs> uh, I started the Israel Innovation Fund six years ago um, as a college student. Uh, I saw that many of the Jewish organizations were clearly mismanaged uh, with a lot of financial irresponsibility. A great example is what happened when the federations raised like $300 million from the second Lebanon war and it didn't get to the war effort in time. Jewish CEOs and nonprofit executives taking, you know, six, seven figure salaries when uh, there were still Ethiopians uh, stuck in. Ethiopia and hadn't made Aliyah yet. Obviously, um, you know, if you do the math, you can uh, feed uh, most hungry Israelis for about a half a billion dollars a year. And with Jewish philanthropy being a multi-billion dollar industry, I just kind of came to the conclusion that something was wrong. Uh, the other thing was that I noticed that everything about Israel and the way it was kind of presented was somewhat of a Jewish Disneyland type of perspective. And I, I fell in love with the reality of Israel, not the, we're surrounded on all sides all the time and it's always a war and we need your help. Um, I don't believe in that. This is a vibrant, sexy country and democracy with a wonderful, beautiful culture that took 2,500 years to reemerge. The entire point of the Israel Innovation Fund is to become a new Zionist institution. It's a gift from my generation to the next 
with a focus on Israeli and Jewish culture. Uh, we do not do religion or politics. There are plenty of organizations who include work in, in those two fields. Uh, my opinion is that you have your religion and you have your politics, but everything in between that is your culture. And if you look at the early Zionist movement and the early Zionist leaders, while they were all political ideologues of some kind, it was all about creating Hebrew culture. It was about creating the new Jew, the one that worked the land and could waltz and go to an art gallery afterwards, uh, if that makes sense. Our flagship project is called Wine on the Vine. The Jewish world became familiar with supporting the land of Israel and building the, the state by spending $18 and planting a tree. But as most people know, uh, like the Carmel Forest Fire about 10, 12 years ago, they were planting the wrong types of trees in the wrong places. Now, it's a wonderful thing. We entered the 21st century with more trees than we did the 20th, but a lot of them were European pine trees, not Middle Eastern pine trees. And grapevines are 100% indigenous to the land of Israel. They are just like a tree, and they are the fulfillment of prophecy of Yermiahu and Amos and others who said that the Jewish people would return to the land and reinvigorate it through wine and vines. And we allow people to plant a grapevine with multiple different wineries around the, around the country. And uh, we're actually working to scale that project right now. We are uh, basically wine and the vine started with grapevines. Then it turned into planting grapevines and throwing wine parties to introduce people to the wineries that they would want to plant vines with. Then we started making content about Israeli wine and culture and the wineries themselves. Then we opened up a store for to buy Israeli wine, both in Israel and in the States. You, you can find that store at wineonthevine.org slash US or backslash IL for whichever country you're in. And, and then we started a show called Wine with Adam that ran for two seasons on JNS. I did my last episode of the second season, and then I, I decided I wanted to move it to a different network. And my last episode was with Tom Nides. And the entire point was to introduce people to Israel and to the people that are in the news so that people could get to know the people behind policy. I'm a big believer, especially after filming two seasons of the show, sitting with people like Ron Dermer and Amir Hashikli and Natan Sharansky and Tom Nights and Flora Hassan Nafum and, um, and so other very wonderful, popular personalities. Actually, Tuvia Tenenbaum was a really wonderful interview, believe it or not. And uh, the whole point was to sit with them over a bottle of wine, get a few drinks with them and get them to be honest. And, uh, and so that people could learn who these people were. And the last piece of the puzzle is we are starting a venture capital firm that will be investing in uh, Israeli wineries to help promote and grow them and to combine that with the tourism industry for tourists when they come to Israel to experience planting a vine like you used to be able to plant a tree. So it took about six years for us to build out the entire program. And now we're kind of ready to take it to scale. Commendable mission, the way that you've prioritized spreading the word around tourism for Israel, also investigating and developing relationships with meaningful personalities that contribute to the culture of the country. I'm very curious. When you go through all these projects, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? What is it that Israel means to you within the scope of your work? So I've always joked and said, I want to move a million Jews to Israel. And then I like to say the Messiah can do the rest of the work. 
<laughs> it's a good one, right? Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> and why is it so important? Well, to move uh, that many people to Israel. So um, I'm a student of Zionism. I'm a student of the Arab-Israeli conflict, and I'm a student of Palestinian nationalism um, and the Palestinian national movement. Um, I also have somewhat of an expertise in, in the radicalization of that national movement. Uh, in my opinion, the main thing that has created this conflict is not our presence in the land. It's the land. I want to gently interrupt you, and I want to just delve into your expertise for a bit before we get into your opinion. Could you uh, share with the audience some of your background? Oh, sure. I have a uh, bachelor's degree in uh, Judaic and Middle Eastern history from the University of Arizona, and I have a master's degree in uh, Middle Eastern history from Tel Aviv University. I served in the uh, Israeli army in the civil administration in Hebron and Bet El. Uh, I also ran a Middle Eastern belly dancing company for a year, living in Ningbo, China, um, where our, it was basically like the voice, but, but for belly dancing and the, uh, business was owned and run by Israelis. Um, the vendors were all from different Arab countries, uh, from Morocco to Saudi Arabia to Dubai. And that was where I kind of realized that peacemaking would be done through strength and economic development. And it very much altered my worldview. And I've been in Israel for the last 12 years. Now that we know who we're talking to, I'd love to hear your opinion. So the reason why I've always joked about moving a million Jews to Israel, I'm a, I'm a descendant of the Baal Shem Tov. So um, joy and happiness has always been a huge part of how I've connected to what people refer to as Judaism or rabbinic Judaism or uh, Jewish religious practice or observance, so to speak. And um, the wine part is definitely the joy part without question. But as a student of philosophy and history and politics, uh, I came to early conclusions that the main hurdle to the Zionist project was the lack of people, a lack of, a lack of population in the land of Israel. Uh, the Zionist movement was the minority of the Jewish people for the beginning of its inception and probably the first 50 years until the foundation of the state of Israel. Um, and if you are familiar with what happened after the 1929 riots and then the 1936 Arab revolt, one of the things that happened was is that the British issued the white paper basically uh, stopping or uh, creating a succession of, of Jewish immigration to, to British Palestine. Uh, prior to the Holocaust, which is uh, referred to as, as the famous uh, Shlomo Aronson uh, called it the quadruple track of, of European Jewry who were then sacrificed in what we know as the Holocaust. Um, so to me, uh, you know, even if you look at the debates between left and right, whether it's a two-state solution or a one-state solution, or, you know, would we be taking this hilltop or that hilltop? It's always a demographic question. Everybody's always worried about our demographics. Now, personally, um, the one thing that I know that is truth about this conflict is that time fixes those things at, in Israel's favor. Uh, and time has always led to our building of strength, the building of our economy, the spreading out of communities, and so on and so forth. So um, I did come to the conclusion that the one thing that needs to be done is we need to encourage people to make Aliyah. We need to, and 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 personally, that's also, I have a more selfish uh, reason for it. If you really think about it, 
after living here for so many years and dealing with the former socialist infrastructure that uh, the, the, the last, I would say, five or six previous governments have worked very hard since the year 2000 to try to change and get rid of, uh, it would just be really great to get a bunch of American specialists and uh, in customer service over here so we can teach people how to be good waiters and bank tellers and everything else. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I always used to joke I would go to the bank and I would want to send Iran secret information on how to bob us. <laughs> because going to the Israeli bank, it's the worst experience in the world. But, but, but yeah, the worst experience in the world. Uh, but, uh, and I'm sure you know, if you served in the army, I'm sure you had to go to a bank or two every once in a while. Oh uh, man, so, the DMV always seems oh, to trump oh, everything. <laughs> listen, uh, how about the Israeli DMV? <laughs> that I, yeah, that I yeah, 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 it's much worse. No, but um, the, the conflict has always come down to a lack of Jews. It's always been about how many more Jews can we get here? How can we grow the Jewish population? Um, how do we cultivate Jewish identity, create proactive Zionists? How do we put the lenses of Jewish history on people's eyes, which is really what I think the March of the Living does best? It, it, it takes, a, a, takes a, a product of a diaspora Jew who doesn't necessarily look at the world through the context of 3,000, 4,000 years of Jewish history. And when you're done with that trip, usually you never see the world or what happens next the same. Very well said about that last portion. Yesterday I was interviewing Mr. Joel Katz, the regional director who of, of the Northeast Division, who took me around Poland and Israel. And it was in Poland that I made the decision to go and enlist in the IDF just because mm -hmm. of how impactful. And I don't want to say traumatic, but it was just one of those experiences. Like you said, you just never see the world the same. And, you know, I'm very curious from firsthand testimonial. I feel like we can kind of put it on the shelf in the limited time that we have here about what's going on over there from your perspective, because I've seen some videos of you having to listen to sirens and then taking shelter. And I think it's very important for the audience to get some feedback on what it's like with feet on the ground, living in Israel in today's day and age. What, what, what would you like to know? Before we get into it, I think it's also important to address the, the themes that have surrounded anti-Semitism. Okay. I feel that when I see all the content surrounding the internet lately, whether it's the algorithm in my ear or just conversations or, you know, living in New York in today's day and age and seeing the protests or the stars of... You mean, you mean, you mean the BLM 2.0 protests <laughs> or, 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 or in terms of Instagram, right before I got on this call with you. Somebody had written on one of my posts saying that AI created 40 decapitated babies. I loved that one. That one was, uh, yeah, no, they're, 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 here's, the, here, here's the theme. The last 20, 30, 40 years, this radical revolutionary socialist left has aligned themselves with the radical Islamists. No, it's no different than the Soviet Arab bloc that once existed in the UN. Um, for 20 some odd years, at least 16 years since the second Lebanon war at minimum, when modern has arrived and came a thing, 
uh, and the BDS movement emerged, you have had the radicalization of young, disenfranchised leftists, uh, the, the Occupy Wall Street types, the BLM types, the Bernie Sanders voters, um, uh, basically mutating both medieval and modern anti-Semitism into what is now modern anti-Israelism or anti-Zionism. In college, I actually preferred the term Israelism because the Jewish people are Israel. The state of Israel is Israel, the land of Israel. What it is, it's the, it's the denial of the connection between the people of Israel and the land of Israel. And um, they've denied the intersectionality of our own identity, which is really the bedrock of the idea of intersectionality, in my opinion. And you have seen how liberation theory is being applied to even the story of Jesus in the New Testament uh, as being a Palestinian or an anti-this or an anti-Zionist or this. When Jesus was a, Ju a second temple Judean Israelite Jew who fought for independence from Rome, who was no different than many other people at that time who were disgusted by the colonial oppression of the Roman Empire. You know, very few people realize that Jewish people were the very first victims of Western imperialization by Rome. Um, so for the last, and I, I love using the Jesus example because it's just so widely understood by so many people because there are more Christians than Jews. Um, and, and, you know, the, the narrative of Jesus is constantly used in popular culture and symbolism and whatever. But um, it's quite sad, it's quite sickening that to the last 15, 20 years, there's been a small portion of, of, of what some people would refer to as right-wing Zionists who have been clamoring and trying to explain there is a problem brewing and nobody is doing anything about it. And uh, if you watched the last episode I filmed with Tom Nides on, on Why Without Him, uh, one of the things that I brought up was the new Biden anti-Semitism policy. And, you know, I, I started out saying, you know, I just read the administration's uh, policy on anti-Semitism. And he immediately responded, and, and let me just read this. I really I like Tom Nides. I really like Tom Nides. He's a great guy. You could tell by our video that we have a prior relationship. We get along. I talk to him quite regularly. He's one of the nicest, sweetest guys. He's a huge supporter of Israel. He loves the Jewish people. It's just a difference of opinion. Okay. So I want to preface that with, you know, I before I go down this, I remember seeing this and him saying it was good, wasn't it? And you just were like, well, <laughs> I said, and now I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, actually, no, like, uh, because if you read the, the, the anti-Semitism policy, all it was, was policy towards radical, uh, radical, uh, white nationalists. It had nothing to do with actual anti-Semitism. And if it did, it only addressed one side of the aisle. And, as anybody that has studied anti-Semitism knows, it's always been a problem over the far right and the far left. It's how they meet in the middle together. Uh, as any observer of history would know, when anti-Semitism actually becomes a problem, that's when the whole country goes down the drains. So um, there was no mention of radical Islam. There was no radical mention of anti-Zionism. There was the word Zionism was not mentioned in this report. Um, so there has been a complete ignorance by uh, the Jewish industrial complex <laughs> of, of, of the major organizations, um, including the ADL. And not that they've ignored it. I, I mean, I like Jonathan. I think he's a great guy. 
Uh, you know, personally speaking, I have nothing negative to say about him. He's a fun guy to have a drink with. Um, I, I really do like him as a person, but um, it's quite clear that we were ignoring the radical anti-Semitism of the left because the left had become so concerned about Trump and winning votes and not alienating people to help their broader political agenda. And what was put on the altar of that broader political agenda was once again, the modern Jew. And um, it's quite clear that we have now been sacrificed with thousands dead in the street and 40 babies with their heads cut off and women indiscriminately violated and raped. And um, I just find zero excuse for championing a cause that um, did not actually address the actual issue. And I'm also very disappointed in Deborah Lipstadt, who I have not heard one word out of since this conflict began, and who allowed multiple radical Islamic organizations like CARE to be involved in an anti-Semitism policy. I don't understand why any other ethnic group needed to be mentioned in uh, a policy on anti-Semitism. No ethnic group would be um, okay with that, to be completely honest, in my opinion. Pardon the interruption for this episode. We have a quick word from our sponsors, and then we're right back to the show. After the 1,000 pull-up rep challenge, I got super sick, and I started to do some research. How can I control my immune system? How can I put myself in a better position than I've currently put myself in. And candidly, I was not using any real supplements to help me keep my immune system and body in check. Some protein shakes, some other vitamin D, magnesium, but nothing really consistently. I thought there was a lot of pride in not using supplements, and that was my mistake. So I experimented with a few different brands over the course of the last few months, and the brand that I have decided to work with is Promix. I spent some time testing out their products, and truthfully, from the taste to the function, Promix is by far the leader in the market when it comes to clean, organic ingredients that you can rely on to help keep your body in check. So I've partnered with Promix to help you get 20% off your first order. Whether it's the protein cereal bars, the electrolytes, the probiotic, the prebiotic de-bloat, mixing them with the electrolytes, the flavors on point, the ingredients are on point, and truly my quality of life has improved as a result. I can candidly say that. The story of the founders is awesome in and of itself. So independent of that, the brand is one that I can stand behind knowing that I get what my body needs so I can perform at my peak. So head over to the Promix website and to get 20% off your first order, type in the code inside the Inspired. That's right. For 20% off your first order, you can type in the code inside the Inspired and get the quality product that you need. All right, let's get back to the show. I hope I'm not veering too off from your questions. I apologize. I think part of it is that there's obviously a passion and a history that goes into this, and context is key, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Context is absolutely important, and one of the things that the radical left, especially academics of the radical left, will do 
is try to use the term context in order to mutate the, the, the reality. And, and, and that actually happened out at Times of India interview that I did yesterday. I'd love to send you that clip. I went, I actually yeah, went berserk. I, I went berserk on live TV. Like uh, you, you'll find, you and Ben will find it very entertaining, but he tried to equate um, what we are doing um, and what they are doing. I, I, how do I explain this? This gentleman, this was right before the announcement came out about the rocket that misfired that hit the hospital. And he was saying yeah. that we caused a humanitarian crisis and that we're going to lose the PR battle now, and that Israel, by going in on the ground, will destroy the world's image. And I, and I, I kind of lost it because he was trying to explain, we need to understand all of this in context and oppression and this and that. And, no. you know, ha having, having, had a, having had a small expertise in Palestinian nationalism and the Palestinian National Resistance Movement, I clearly made the differentiation between um, this expression of violence and the Palestinian right to self-determination and the failure each time Palestinian nationalism has expressed itself with this type of resistance or violence. Uh, the gentleman of silence. It's rather entertaining. I can imagine. I can imagine because, you know, you've mentioned the word mutate a few different times. You know, we could see in the background cars are driving on the road. Can you can you share with the audience where you're based right now, just briefly? So I'm I'm in the city of Tel Aviv. Um, I'm in the farthest northern exit of the city of Tel Aviv. The the highway exit right after me is the Ramada is is the Tel Aviv University in Ramad Aviv, which is the northern suburb of Tel Aviv. And um, uh, we are uh, well. Actually, if I tilt the camera upwards a little bit, you might be able to catch a glimpse of the Mediterranean. So what's it like right now? As I said, feet on the ground, you've had to shelter quite a few times. Please give the audience some perspective on what you're dealing with as a citizen of Israel on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. It's like Shabbat every day, if that makes sense. Yeah, right now, um, there are not people in the streets. Uh, the cars are maybe going from place to place. People, lots of people are going to shivas, funerals, things like that. People still have to go to the grocery store and stock up uh, because nobody's really leaving the house. Um, I've seen some kids playing in the, the areas that are like walled off to the buildings that are like next to me and you know down the street, but that's because it's walled off and it's like kind of a backyard to your home, so to speak. Uh, and there isn't a, a bomb shelter that's that far away from this outdoor spot. Um, listen, last night, I'll just give you a really great example. Last night, I was extremely tired, and I, I realized that uh, I, it was probably a good idea to take uh, my dog, Momo, out to go pee before he went to bed, just in case the rockets started coming like late at night. And, you know, I'm trying to prepare for any type of day where it's just going to be a constant bombardment like 2021. And... I was not paying attention to what I was doing when I was walking the dog. It was late. And uh, I can't believe that because I never usually don't have my wits about me. And all of a sudden, I just look up and there is a person standing right in front of me with a hoodie on and a bandana covering their face. And one arm was in their pocket and the other one was visible. And I stared at that person, okay? And it felt like I was in the army again when I was at the Allenby Bridge and they would look at me like the enemy. 
It's the only time I ever saw anybody's eyes look like that. And we stood there and looked at each other and just both stood still. And I never darted and ran in the opposite direction faster than I have ever done that before. We, and we immediately called the police. Um, you know, it's very clear that obviously people got into Israel and that infiltrators were able to get into Israel. Um, and I've been very worried about reprisal attacks all over the country. And if you use logic, who is walking around with a hood and a bandana covering their face right now? There's only one type of terrorist that does that and it's radical Islamists, like at least in this region. So I have no idea what I saw. I could have just been an idiot dressed like an idiot during the stupidest time to ever dress like that. But, um, I feel like if it would have been somebody innocent, they would have said, oh my God, no, sorry for scaring you or whatever. I, it was one of the scariest moments of my life because I was unarmed, uh, to be completely honest. I didn't have anything on me and, um, that will have to change. But, um, you know, that's the mood right now. If that makes any sense whatsoever. I mean, it is quiet. It is somber. People are sad. People are, some people aren't able to get out of bed. Um, you know, uh, but here's the most interesting thing. Israeli society is known for being very intense. We yell and we scream. It's like you curse your brother and you bless your enemy. That's the joke, you know? Can I swear on this program? Do you mind? Sure. So one of the, the explicit. One of the jokes, one of the jokes that I have with my best friend who, whose family adopted me was instead of saying, I love you, we say, go fuck yourself. It's just our joke. You know, like instead of hug Sameach, we say fuck Sameach. You know, like, like there's that type of like levity and like humor. Okay. And, but there's also an intensity to this country where, you know, you yell and scream and then the argument is over and it's like, oh, okay, I mean, let's, let's have a beer. That is not present right now. Everybody is so nice to each other. You know, you, you run it, it, the first two days of the war. I, I was going to the Osher Ot, which is like the Israeli Costco to do food runs for the um, Hangar 11 was delivering food all over the country to people. Well, really to the South. And I mean, it was jam packed. It was like the 404 or, you know, like any, it worse than LA traffic, worse than Shanghai traffic. Okay. And everybody was so kind and so nice. Oh no, you go ahead. Oh no, you go ahead. You know, um, on the road, usually if somebody like cuts you off or does something stupid, people are yelling and screaming at each other. It's like, okay, just go ahead. Just go ahead. It's like all of a sudden we've become Westerners in terms of our politeness. And this is that Israeli spirit of everybody having each other's back. You know, it, 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 people will joke, you know, you put in this country normally, you get a flat tire, you pull over the side of the road, some guy comes up to you, they change your tire, they invite you over for Friday night dinner and they try to make you marry their daughter. Okay, totally a real part of Israeli society. But he might yell and scream at you, telling you all the mistakes that you've done in your life. While he does that, if that makes sense. That's not familiar. That's not going on right now. It, everybody is so peaceful with each other because we're at war. Everybody, I think everybody understands that we let the arguing get too far, if that makes sense. So uh, as you look to the future and you see the landscape as it's before us, I asked Joel if any of the education, I mean, I'll, I'll just briefly share some, some of the actions that I've been taking in light of what's happened. A big part has been becoming as informed as possible. Okay. And while I may not have a master's in Middle Eastern studies, I know how to do research as an attorney. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. know how to verify resources. And I find that because there's so much misinformation that, you know, you just have to question, you just have to question everything. And yeah. that's a very uncommon practice. And I, I feel that even it, it, it's not even like you can look at three to four different resources. If we look at what happened yesterday with the misfiring of the rocket, you have all Good. the major news outlets that are reporting. And that's like one, two, three, four, five, ten different sources, and they're all inaccurate. So it's very frustrating. So weighted believability is a very valuable tool to understand. How do you how do you establish credibility? So my question to you is how can people start to inform themselves accurately and verify their sources in a meaningful way? that allows them to trust and develop informed opinions that have meaningful conversations that actually take us and progress us forward as a society towards first peace. Of, first of all, question everything. Everything. The world is run by shepherds and see the majority of people sheep. You have to decide for yourself whether you want to be a shepherd or a sheep. That is first and foremost. The other is, it should take years for you to begin to form your first opinions. Years. You should be listening to news from all across the world and multiple different sources from Shanghai to Los Angeles, you know, from Nairobi to Beirut. I, I mean, the more you intake, the more that you understand what's going on in China, the more you'll know what's going on in Russia. The more you know what's going on in Saudi Arabia, the more you'll know what's going on in Iran. The more that you know what's going on with China, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, the more you'll know what's going on with Israel and the United States. The more that you know what's going on in the Sub-Saharan, the more you'll understand what's going on in North Africa. The more you understand the world financial markets, you'll understand the military industrial complex. The more you begin to see things outside of the prism of Democrat or Republican, the more you will learn, the more you will understand, the more you break through the shackles of boxes and ideological spheres, the more you will understand. You know, every morning I wake up and I say, Alexa, tell me the news. And I sit through and I listen to about an hour worth of different news sources for about uh, anything from 30 seconds to five minutes from each different source. Um, sometimes it's the same story told 10 different times, 10 different ways. Um, and you're able to kind of see the difference. Uh, I always like to joke that the thing that separates the men from the boys or the adults from the children is reading. Okay. It was actually very interesting right before this conflict. I had taken a break from a lot of research. It, it had been some time since I was diving into things like I normally do. Uh, one of the things that had begun was that I had started hosting a political talk show on ILTV, but I did a short two month run of, and, uh, the judicial reforms happened and I, I knew about judicial reform. I understood judicial reform. I, I understood that this was a conversation that had been happening for the last 20 years, but I just decided to switch off because I was so aggravated uh, with it. And I already knew my opinion on it. And I knew my opinion of the, um, of the, uh, of the politicians that were involved and who had wrote what and who had submitted what and who was out in the streets and who wasn't out in the streets, you know, but like, if you asked me to quote the reasonable clause right now and explain it, I couldn't do it, which is very rare for me. I was like going through this period of like, I got to turn the world off mentally and totally focus on finishing building my organization and not be distracted by things, uh, especially from doing 
Wine with Adam, which involved, you know, sometimes before I would do an interview, I would take three weeks to do deep dives into these people's lives to completely and utterly understand them. When I, when I uh, did my first interview with uh, Ron Derner, I joked that I, I knew Ron probably better than he knew himself. Yeah, and, uh, and he goes, well, you don't want to do it 201 because 101 will make you go insane, which I thought was a clever, clever thing that he said in response. Um, my professor Shlomo Aronson, uh, may, may his memory be a blessing, uh, used to say, never stop reading, never stop learning. You know, I read the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and Bloomberg. Those are my three main go-to news sources because they're not really about an ideological um, approach. It's a financial, global markets, geopolitical assessment newspaper, uh, all three of them, so to speak. While, while there is like some type of ideology, um, you know, I, I've made hundreds of thousands of dollars taking advice from Bloomberg. Uh, I mean, like uh, things that I've heard, snippets here and there. Uh, it's fantastic. I uh, Understanding financial markets, by the way, is probably one of the most important things when it comes to understanding geopolitics, because you would never understand why the Syrian civil war happened if you didn't know that there was a drought right before that and that all the farmers' crops were destroyed and you had an entire industry in Syria basically go belly up, okay, which heavily led to the protests, you know, 12, 13 years ago there. Uh, you know, economics is a huge part of things. It's not, you don't need to be an accountant, uh, but you need to understand, you know, economies to scale and, and, why countries do what they do. I, I remember, uh, and I, I, we, we can move past this question after this, but I, I remember uh, I was home for uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and somebody was complaining about immigration policy in the United States and saying, oh, I believe like all the borders should be open and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Now, if you're an open borderist, okay, you live in a fantasy world because you can't have a country without a border. That's just a fact. You can have borders that have visas or that are open or that, you know, you take people in, but you can't just not have a border. We also learned that from COVID, how important borders are. Okay. As they say, fences make, you know, fences and neighborhoods make the best neighbors. Okay. I explained to him without even giving him my opinion on immigration. Okay. But what, what you're saying, I go, is not how policy is for. Policy is not about the individual feelings and lives of people. It has to do with countries. It has to do with trade, it has to do with economy, it has to do with all of these different factors that lead a country or lawmakers to a, to a decision, whether or not it is right or wrong. Great example, Iran deal, okay? Policy decision from an ideological space to bring a country of radicals into the diplomatic mainstream in order to hope that their radicalism subsides. This was the wrong approach understand as I'm like explaining how policy is crafted, he just interrupts me and goes, fuck you. Like, you know, bah, 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 da, 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 da. And I go, whoa, whoa. I go, one, I would never speak to you like that. Okay. Even though if you look at my social media, you can tell I've got a very dirty mouth, but apparently there's a 40 year study that says high performance people use the F word more than most. So I, I was very flattered by that 40 year study. How about that? Uh, how about that? But, um, and I, I sat there and I explained it. I go, I'm not giving you my opinion right now. I'm just telling you the facts on the ground on how policy is made. So 
the world has become hypersensitive and the way that you can defend yourself from that hypersensitivity is being in, in what would be the term in English? Like being in control or in hand of the facts. And, and the, you know, one of the things that I, I used to work with Michael Oren randomly, like I, I was never employed by him, but I worked on his team for the, uh, his election here when he ran with the Pilato party. I spent a lot of time with him. I watched him in the Knesset. And I, I also, uh, you know, I've interviewed him before I worked with him and I put myself through like a Michael Oren 101. And I like to say, I went all the way through Michael Oren 401, but that's a different discussion. But, um, Michael was, when he was in the space of public diplomacy, as a historian, he was always in command of the historical facts and the historical context. And that made him a great storyteller and debater. So, you know, reading, you know, understanding how human history has gotten to this point. You can't understand the world right now if you don't understand China. I can tell you that right now. You cannot understand the world right now if you don't understand, you know, post-Soviet Russia. Uh, I, I can't even begin to think how people can understand the Middle East without understanding Zionism and the story of Israel. I, you know, one of the most, one of the biggest arguments that I got into with my class and my master's, I was the least popular person in my master's class because I was one of the few Israelis in the program. And, uh, I got into an argument with everybody in the middle of our Arab state system class when I said that Zionism was the most important national and ideological movements in the Middle East, because it clearly shaped the Middle East through anti-Zionism. And everybody was like, you're just a Zionist, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the professor goes, no, you're right. They were like, the last hundred years has been about eradicating the Zionist entity, like forcibly changing, you know, the path of the majority of the world. So never stop read it. Never stop learning. You know, you can always tell when somebody speaks by the lexicon they use, how well-educated or what their ideological perspective is. We talk a lot about cultivating curiosity on this show and distilling actionable strategies that people can implement into their lives to make progress, to take steps forward. And I think you did a very solid job of outlining different ways that people can really start to actionably verify resources and inform themselves without just, you know, having this perspective of the world's a fantasy land. Moral neutrality, in my view. Is moral, neutrality is, moral neutrality is the reason why 6 million Jews were killed. And it could be, it could be like people. Moral, moral neutrality. Take a, take a moral, moral, moral neutrality is why 1,200 Jews were slaughtered last week. Moral neutrality is why 40 babies had their heads cut off last week. Moral neutrality is why hundreds of women were sexually assaulted and, and burnt with their hands tied last week. And as we look to the future, Do you have hope? I was asking this question to Joel the other day. I, <laughs> I asked him, you know, will it ever be enough? And I'm going to pose the question to you. Do you have hope that there is 
a light at the end of the tunnel for where anti-Semitism is not as prevalent and we could start to open up our horizons to, to a mindset and a space where not necessarily that we all live in peace, but can at least have a meaningful conversation and live in a place, live in a world that self-acceptance and acceptance of one another and the tolerance of it, the bar is raised. So the Jewish community made the mistake thinking that anti-Semitism had disappeared after the Holocaust. I don't think anti-Semitism was going to be disappearing after this unless we eradicate every single Hamas supporter from the face of the planet. I don't even know if I condone that necessarily. So I don't think anti-Semitism will ever be eradicated. Uh, to stick to the main point of your question, do I have hope? So Rabbi Sachs has this philosophy on the politics of hope. Our national anthem in Israel is called Hatikva, the hope. The Jewish people have had hopes and dreams to return to their land for 2,500 years. And that's exactly what we did. And it became the beacon and the envy of the post-colonial world and the developing world. Ben-Gurion once said in Israel, if you're going to be a realist, you have to believe in miracles. So, and I don't think it's a miracle to have hope. I think that anybody who knows the story of the Jewish people has hope. Uh, hope is something that has driven us forward for 2,500 years of exile. I have hope that one day people will be so afraid to fuck with us that I will never see the images that I ever saw. I have hope that we will never allow the world to ever tie our hands behind our back like they have done with many of the conflicts with the Arab world. I have hope that the Jewish community will begin to take their safety seriously and put Karav Maga in every school and every synagogue. I have hope that my grandchildren will get to see a temple in Jerusalem one day. I have hope that at some point the world will recognize the gifts that the people of the book have given to civilization in the last 2,500 years. I have hope that I never have to hear the words never again. One can hope for many things, but there is one reality that allows that hope to really never be cracked. And that is the history of a 4,000 year old civilization. The Jew is as eternal as eternality itself. So whether or not I need hope or not, that hope is embedded in every single fiber of my being. There's a question that I pose to everyone that comes on this podcast, and I'm going to pose it to you as we wrap this thing up. Cool. If the future version of yourself from 10 years from now, assuming he's in that ideal spot, were to fly in and offer you some advice, what do you think he would say to you in order to get there? 
Okay, I'm, I'm going to have to ask for some clarity on that. And two, I love it because as you know, on my show, I had a very similar question, which was uh, if you could, if I'm getting bar mitzvahed right now, what would be all the advice that you could give me that you've learned from your life in one sentence? By the way, nobody would ever answer it in one sentence. So uh, as, uh, as a virgin to being asked a final question like this, would you mind repeating that one more time? And then I'm probably going to have to ask for some clarity. <laughs> clarity is simply... The clarity is simply, uh-huh. my future self is coming to me yeah, and offering and, you advice in order to get to where he's at. Uh, so I'm going to rephrase your question and I think I'll answer it at the same time. Okay. If, if I was to go back 10 years right now as this person and give myself advice or 12 years, 15 years, whatever, let's say before move into Israel, I would say, chill out, relax. It'll all work out in the end, baby. And enjoy and enjoy the ride. Don't forget to enjoy the ride and smell the rose of the set. Appreciate the salt in the air, if that makes any sense. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Adam Scott Bellos, thank you so much. Please let the audience know where they can keep up with your journey. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at, at Wine with Adam. I'm on Twitter and Facebook or at Adam Scott Bellos or something like that. It's just my full name. But, um, and uh, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> thank you so much for this, man. Awesome catching up with you. And, and Likewise. Kind of- Likewise. Take care. Godspeed. Stay safe over there in America. You too, man.